Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Event goes today, most of you are aware, we will have 25 to 30 minutes for our speaker today, then we will break for lunch, and then we'll follow up with a half an hour for questions after. Today's presenter, he has won seven national magazine awards for his journalism since 89, and top honours for investigative writing from the Association of Canadian Journalists. He has been nominated for the Governor General's Award for Nonfiction in 2011, and today he presents with Jessica, who is here with us today, uh, his book called Slick Water, Investigative Journalism on that asserts Jessica Ernst's court battle for justice. So the topic today, contaminated water from fracking, are we respons- who is responsible when things go wrong? May you all welcome warmly Andrew Nikoforek. Well, good afternoon. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here once again in Lethbridge um, uh, with this very particular and demanding audience. Um, I, I've got my timelines here, so I will try to, to, to stick with them. Uh, I want to tell you today, um, or, or really talk today, about uh, a story I started working on back in, in 2004. And, uh, and a story that has taken on a life of its own in, in a very extraordinary way. And that also involves uh, a very extraordinary woman. Um, whose fight for justice in this province um, is, uh, is, should be an inspiration to all of us. So let's begin by, you know, there, th- th- this story is, is a story about an, a new technology that is constantly changing and its impact on, on rural communities. Um, at a, at, and, and at the base, it's also a story about how our resources are becoming more difficult to extract. Um, and so we started at the top of the pyramid with, with, with pools of gas and, and pools of oil in this province that were relatively easy to pump out of the ground. Now we're going after stuff that is much more difficult, much more extreme, whether it's shallow coal fields in central Alberta or whether it's uh, oil shale in the cardium or oil shale um, um, along the blood reserve uh, in the border with Montana. Um, so we, we, and we're not talking about this because business as usual has ended and we now have to resort to more extreme measures to extract these resources. And then we, we forget to, to talk about existing problems. We have some existing problems with the oil patch. In particular, we have drilled more than 4.3 million wells. Each one of those wells on the continent serves as a pathway for gas migration. Uh, We know that the cementing of these wells, in in many cases, has been poor. Uh, We know that the cement corrodes over time. Uh, Just think of a piece of bubble gum underneath a desk as it grows old and becomes more brittle. And that you've got a good picture of what a cement on a well site looks like. And uh, so we have this huge existing liability 
of wells across the landscape that are leaking gas. This gas goes into the atmosphere or it follows the path of least resistance in the ground and ends up in groundwater. Uh, and this is a map of, of actively leaking wells throughout the province put together by Carlos Mullenbach's. Now, that's, of course, what uh, cement uh, uh, and bubblegum, uh, but cement over time will, will just corrode just like a piece of bubblegum. So we've got more than 500,000 well bores in this province. Almost all of them are leaking to one degree or another, some of them prolifically, and they are, as Maurice Dussault, uh, one of the country's foremost petroleum geologists, would say, a threat to the environment and public safety. So we're not doing a good job of attending to this infrastructure that's out there. And then we introduce uh, an, a technology that is shaking everything up. That's what hydraulic fracturing does. It creates mini earthquakes in the ground to break up rock formations to release uh, the oil or, or methane that might be there in very small amounts over extensive distances to the point that uh, uh, it, it's, it, you know, th this is an industry that's creating earthquakes all the time. Several were created uh, around Del Bonita in 2012 when you had earthquakes of, I think, 2.4, 2.5 uh, being set off by frack operations. Frack operations in Fox Creek, of course, have set off earthquakes as great as 4.6, 4.8 in, in northern B.C., you know, once you hit five, you are, you are actively damaging uh, uh, buildings and structures and roadways. So we have this new technology. We have existing liabilities with the consequence that here, as a, a former member of the regulator here in Alberta puts it, Teresa Watson, we've got skeletons coming out of the closet, and the skeletons being uh, leaking methane gases and other hydrocarbons from uh, oil and gas wells across the province. So how did fracking began? It began, you know, nearly 120 years ago, believe it or not. It began in Pennsylvania, home of the first great oil rush on the continent. And it began at installations that looked like this. And these were very shallow oil wells, and they might be pumping 10, 20 barrels of oil a day. And as soon as they started to decline, everyone would scratch their head and say, what's wrong with this well? We need to perhaps open more fractures in the rock. How do we do that? Uh, uh, a union a colonel by the name of Colonel Roberts uh, came up with the idea, well, let's blow the hell out of it. He got a torpedo, and, and he created this incredible business of Roberts Torpedoes, that took over the whole fracking business and, and uh, to, to uh, 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 great uh, grievance, actually, um, because they were picking up the body parts of the torpedo men all over the forests of Pennsylvania for years afterwards, especially when they switched from black powder to nitroglycerin. Now, nitro was used as a frack. Uh, this is what, the, what, what Colonel Roberts' torpedo looked like. Um, and uh, Charlie Stahlnaker, many of you might even have heard of this name, and he was a, he was a torpedo man. He was a, a nitro guy and used to drive around uh, southern uh, Alberta and Montana fracking vertical wells at that time and, and the occasional rattlesnake den. And, uh, uh, and, and you know, he had a, you know, a red truck with a big sign on the back saying, you know, nitro, and so he didn't have to worry about people tailgating him. Um, he trained with 15 men, and Charlie was the only one that died of old age. 
So anyway, so that, that was the fracking business. Then it, then it evolved and started to change, and they started to experiment with acids and then eventually with fluids and injecting fluids at high pressure to break rock. And uh, the first fluids were napalm and diesel fuel and gasoline. And this is what an early frack job looked like. So 10,000 gallons, maybe 600,000 horsepower on the scene. And then, you know, the engineers thought, well, well geez, why don't we use nuclear bombs? And see, we, that, that should really frack the rock. And, of course, it did. Uh, and they tried this in Colorado um, in a number of places. Uh, the only problem was that there was no market for the radioactive gas that it did uh, produce. Um, and so they, they shut down that idea. And so here we are today with a modern frack job where we are marshalling enormous amounts of brute force. Uh, and, and the whole history of the technology is all about the evolution of brute force. And uh, where you have, you know, 61,000 horsepower on site and you're, and you're pumping 5 million gallons of, of water, uh, maybe combined with a petroleum distillate to, to make it more viscous and slide down that well bore easier, and, and hundreds and hundreds of uh, pounds of sand. So fracking in the 1950s kind of looked like a canoe, and today it's more like a nuclear submarine in terms of the energy and force that it, it employs, hence the problems with earthquakes, hence the problems with rattling other uh, oil and pipeline infrastructure and, and making this existing problem of gas migration uh, much more worse. So if you go back and you look at the science, which I did when I was writing this book because I was curious about a whole bunch of things, um, and so this was a study that came out in 1990, and this was a study documenting some of the very first earthquakes being caused by hydraulic fracturing, per se, in Oklahoma, where in 1978, megafrac is done on a deep uh, shell gas well, triggering 70 earthquakes uh, in 6.2 hours alone. Um, the industry uh, has changed the seismicity of Oklahoma. Uh, this was the result of a 5.6 earthquake. This earthquake was triggered by another form of fluid injection. You have a lot of wastewater produced from hydraulic fracturing. In this case, this is the pumping of wastewater into the ground at high volumes over long periods of time, the water eventually hitting a fault, destabilizing a fault, and, and changing the seismicity of, of Oklahoma so that Oklahoma now looks like California. Northern BC, the earthquake patterns there have entirely been changed as well by the hydraulic fracturing industry. And, and big issue here is public safety. You know, when are we going to get a really big frac job that uh, brings down a lot of homes, uh, destroys a bridge, a dam, pipelines, um, or something like that. So, and, and, you know, and petroleum engineers have known about this for years. Seismic activity can create faults and fractures, and that's what fracking does. And seismic vibrations can increase permeability and upward gas migration. So, again, you have a technology that is exacerbating existing and, uh, uh, problems in the industry. And, you know, that, and lots of evidence that, that, you know, the gas is getting into groundwater. Here's uh, evidence from 1987 uh, uh, put together by the Environmental Protection Agency. And, and a very simple uh, declaration here. During the fracturing process, fractures can be produced, allowing migration of native brine, fracturing fluid, and hydrocarbons from the oil or gas well to a nearby water well. When this happens, the water well can be permanently damaged, and a new well must be drilled or an alternative source of drinking water found. And this was a case in West Virginia. 
Now, there, there has never been uh, a regulator in this province that could admit to this very fact yet. Maybe, maybe the book will change this. All right, so where did they start fracking first in North America? Well, all over the place, but one of the big areas they hit first were, were shallow coal basins uh, throughout the United States in the 1980s when the United States was running out of oil and gas, and they thought, okay, how do we sh um, uh, make sure we have our energy security here? Let's frack the heck out of these, these coal basins and see what happens. Well, you know, when, when you're fracking a coal basin, Coal is one of the most fractured substances in the world, and, and, uh, and, and coal mining was a, a, well, almost a, an early form of hydraulic fracturing in the sense that you'd go down vertically and then you'd go across horizontally and you'd have your, 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 you know, the, your, your walls of, your, uh, of the mine being constructed by the miners with picks and axes and, and you'd be chipping away at this coal and releasing methane, and you'd have these enormous gas uh, um, uh, methane explosions, uh, making uh, coal mining, of course, a, a very hazardous proposition. And that's exactly what the hydraulic fracturing did, uh, but on a different scale. And so here's the San Juan Basin, which kind of looks in, in, in southern New Mexico and northern Colorado. Uh, excuse me, southern Colorado and northern New Mexico. Uh, uh, and a very rich coal basin. They, the industry fracked the hell out of it in the 1980s. And as a result, they, they changed the rate at which gas was migrating from, from um, you can see, you know, uh, uh, from, from, from the coal beds that were at the surface. So you had methane coming up in the Animas River. You had methane coming up in in, into people's homes, uh, blowing up people's homes, blowing up trailer homes, uh, blowing up water pumps. Um, um, and with it, as a consequence, to this day, uh, industry has has re has triggered something they can't really control. The the there is a now a cloud of methane over the four corners, almost coming exclusively from this field, from both leaks and from fractures. It, it is the largest what NASA calls the largest methane anomaly in North America. Um, the the big fracking companies, the service companies that do all the fracking. And you've got to think, I mean, fracking is now one of the most expensive services uh, uh, taking place at, at, at an oil well. It's not cementing, it's the fracking. And so Schlumberger and Halliburton are selling their, their services to the oil and gas industry and saying, look, we've got just the right technology to, you know, pull a little more out of these wells, kind of like plastic surgery for hydrocarbons. And um, so, but here they even are admitting, yep, you know, because of the shallow depth of coal, holy smokes, you're, you're going to, be contaminating freshwater aquifers. And then that brings me to Jessica Ernst and her story. So one of the, one of the, the, the important things to know about Jessica is that she has, she's a member of the oil and gas industry and has worked in it most of her life. She was uh, an environmental consultant. Um, she was, became highly skilled at doing cumulative impact studies, wildlife impact studies, pipeline assessments. She worked a lot with First Nations in, in northern BC, in northern Alberta, and she worked for some of the biggest companies around. She worked for Chevron, she worked for Murphy Oil, she worked for Encana, um, she worked for the uh, great Canadian oil sands company. You name it, Jessica was there, and she was there because she was highly competent and her work was highly respected. So along comes one of her largest clients, Encana, around 2003, 2004. They come up with a plan, really, to frack uh, shell coals throughout central Alberta 
And, uh, and, and at the time, they're even calling it an experiment because they're not quite sure how much force they're going to need, what kind of liquid they will have to use to break open these coals to free the methane that's, that's stuck to these very tight coal formations um, like, uh, like, metal, like a magnet to, to a piece of metal. And, and so they, they started this, this drilling in uh, 2003, 2004, and, and landowners are around Rosebud, where Jessica Ernst was, had, uh, uh, was living. She had a property there, still does. Um, they, everyone in the community knew that she worked for the oil and gas industry, and they said, Jess, what, what the heck is going on? Um, can you explain to us why industry needs, needs such close well density? And what are the water demands? And what's going to happen to our groundwater? And what are our rights here as landowners? So she found herself being, being pulled into this whole debate by her community. And, um, and uh, you can see why. I mean, there's what was ended up being drilled in a space of 10 years, more than 10,000 wells between Edmonton and Calgary in the area of the province, which has the largest density of water wells in Alberta. Not to mention thousands and thousands of existing oil and gas uh, uh, well bores, many of which are leaking, and then you do all this fracking, and you're, gonna, you're going to release gas, and that gas is going to come up in, in unpredictable places. In Jessica's case, it came up in her own water well, and also in the water wells of, of many people living in the Rosebud Valley. Um, and her water, be, and it was a heavy oil geologist who was visiting her house one day, said, Jess, you know, the water glasses were on the table. Just imagine your water at this table. And it was fizzing away like 7-Up. Never done that before. Um, all of the original uh, tests on her water well said, you know, gas present, no. Um, and, uh, and he said, Jess, you've either got CO2 in your water or methane. You need to have it checked immediately. And sure enough, she did, and she found that she had explosive levels of methane, and not just methane, but, but other hydrocarbons in her water well. So here you can see where, where the E is. That's where Jessica lives. And then you can see the red dots are all of the shallow drilling that took place uh, into coal seams. And then all of the other red dots are existing oil and gas wells. So you can see that the, 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 the collision taking place underground with enormous amounts of brute force being applied and methane being released. And the kicker for Jessica Ernst was one day a water well driller by the name of Chris Gerritsen uh, said, Jess, you know, you know, I've got a report that you might want to see that's on a water well just down, down the valley. It might explain some of the issues that you've seen. And so she went over to Chris Gerritsen's house, and, uh, and sure enough, here was a report on the Kenny well. And, uh, and if you look at this very carefully, um, in green, you see the, the Incana well going straight down. You can see the two water wells in the river bottom. So the well is drilled in the uplands, and they begin to frack at the same stratigraphic level as the water wells are drawing water from coal. And so Incana fracked right into the aquifer. And uh, the Kenny well was full of nitrogen, and they were doing a nitrogen frack. The well in question, uh, it was 70 million liters at 24 different intervals. Uh, that, that's the amount of frac fluid going down there. At depths to 125 meters, 
right? You know, the, the so-called uh, um, uh, baseline of groundwater protection, it starts at 200 meters. Um, so, okay, 125 to 400 meters. You know, this well was gushing water, uh, 8,000 uh, liters of water a day. And in Canada, plugged it. It was no good. So, what do we know from industry? What, what are petroleum engineers saying about this? Well, that can happen. In fact, it happens all the time. It's been happening since the beginning of fracking. A well can be fracked several times during its lifetime, and in some instances, however, hydraulic fracturing can harm a well by fracking into water. Well, why is that? Because you can never always control the fracks. There is no computer model on this planet that can tell you where all of your fractures will go and what they w might connect to or what other weaknesses in the ground they might aggravate. The, hydrolog the hydrology-induced fractures extend vertically into a water reservoir that floods the well with water. So, here, you know, here's one of the well-known petroleum engineers in a well-known textbook explaining, whoa, accidents happen, and they happen on a regular basis. And so then I went through the literature, and then I began to see that if you go through the literature of petroleum science, which is quite fascinating, here you, you find case after case after case. So here's a case in Pennsylvania by a petroleum geologist by the name of Samuel Harrison. And again, the same kind of uh, scenario. Uh, drilling in the uplands, contamination, methane contamination in the lowland bottoms because they have fracked in the, at the same stratigraphic level. Um, and this is a beautiful illustration, of actually, of what happened in, in Rosebud as, as well. Um, and here's just, he, he's showing those lines that look like bones, those there. Those are the natural fractures that the well site has connected to. And it is those natural fractures which explain why some wells can end up con being contaminated with methane and, and others remain uncontaminated. So here's Jessica Ernst, and uh, I, I must say it's a great pleasure. She is here today, and she's going to, to share the, the questions and answers with me today. Um, and, and Jessica said, you know, this is not right. You, you cannot come into community and frack an aquifer and then pretend nothing has happened and walk away from this. And she said, not only that, you've broken Alberta law, and the, and the law says you cannot divert water without a permit. And in this case, in Canada, I had fracked into an aquifer and was diverting 8,000 liters a day. And, uh, and then, if you do that, then you must resolve any allegation of wrongdoing. And that, that law was on the books. It's now been taken off the books. It's called deregulation. Um, and this is the basis, really, for Jessica's lawsuit. And the reason she is so unique be, there are thousands of cases like this throughout North America. There's more than 200 cases alone in Pennsylvania uh, where the regulator has admitted that industry has contaminated uh, groundwater with methane and other hydrocarbons. Um, but in most cases, industry will come to the landowner and say, offer them a check and a confidentiality agreement that says, all right, this never happened. You shut up. You go away. Uh, here's your, your money, and that allows us to go on and frack somebody else, and it leaves the regulator off the books because they can pretend that there is no problem. 
And what is extraordinary, this is the same legal uh, tactic that the Catholic Church adopted in Boston to cover up the tracks of pedophile priests. Exactly the same mechanism. Children are abused. The bishop knows about the abuse. In this case, it would be the Alberta regulator. Calls the lawyers. The lawyers visit the family. Here's your money. Here's the agreement. This is kept off the public record. The priest is sent to another parish. In, in Alberta's case, you know, the drilling rig is sent to another county. So, with Jessica, we have extraordinary... Uh, I've got that, thank you. Um, uh, extraordinary amount of methane in, in her water. Now, industry will tell you, oh, geez, you know, it, it's, it's perfectly natural to find methane in groundwater throughout Alberta. We are, after all, you know, on top of this sedimentary basin where all this oil and gas exists. And there, there is some truth to that, but not a lot of truth. I mean, it, it takes a, a, a long time for methane to migrate from these formations to the surface. And the one area in the province, um, and, and Jessica Ernst has actually looked at this quite extensively, where you do find some methane leaching of this nature it is probably right, right down here around the, the Milk River. Elsewhere in the province, these formations are really tight. They're hanging on to their hydrocarbons. Um, and so, yes, you can find methane in some areas in, in groundwater, but in very small amounts. And that's what the literature shows consistently, like it's 0.5 milligrams. It's not 30 or 60 milligrams. And when you've got 30 or 60 milligrams of methane in your water, it's a, almost a sure sign of industrial contamination coming from an industry source. Now, at the same time that Jessica was putting this all together and coming to terms with this as a member of industry, she, I mean, she had to resign um, um, from in Canada. She said, sent them a letter saying, look, I, 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 for the life of me, I cannot understand why you are behaving the way you are behaving in my community and not coming up uh, uh, and, 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 and being honest with people about what you really want to do and the hazards and risks associated with the shallow frackings of coal. So she resigned. Then she took on this, this, this incredible legal project because when she realized that the regulators and the government weren't going to do anything. Then she got this endless flood of calls from landowners across the province. Here's Bruce Jack. Um, this was his pump house. Um, he and three and two other technicians were caught in this explosion. Bruce Jack was actually sent through the air about 70 feet. Um, his clothes caught on fire. And this was another story of, of, of existing energy wells that were leaking methane. The methane accumulated in his pump house. The regulator was in a state of denial about this very issue. Um, and, and Bruce Jack nearly got killed. There is no regulatory record of this event having taken place in Alberta because that would spoil the illusion that water contamination does not happen here. 
But there was a report done uh, by Alberta Innovates that said identified two gas wells with surface casing vent flows and uncemented zones. Results of a gas migration study confirmed that gas was leaking from these energy wells. Gas in Mr. Jack's water well included a component of deeper thermogenic gas, gas coming from rock in the ground that was served as a source for an energy well. Now, one of the things that really got Jess, uh, and, and, and she constantly was searching for information, was with, with this memo. This memo is extraordinary. This is a memo uh, from John McDougall, who was head of the Alberta Research Council, which then became Alberta Innovates. Uh, and this is a memo that was written in 2007. It went to a number of, of ministers in Alberta, as well as ministers across the country. And the memo was saying, you know, we've got some problem with landowners and because we've fracked these, these coal seams in central Alberta in the, in the Horseshoe Canyon. Um, and, you know, there's great concern about this. Um, and here's what we're going to be doing. Alberta Environment will be responding to affected landowners uh, based on scientific findings and evidence from the Alberta Research Council's research and expertise. When contamination, where contamination appears to be related to poor water maintenance or naturally occurring methane-producing bacteria, rather than from coal bed methane activities, landowners may not willingly accept the findings. So what he is announcing is that eight months before <laughs> uh, the Alberta Research Council actually did its investigation, what the conclusion would be. And the conclusions were fraudulent and they were not based on science, and they were not best on the based available science, uh, scientific data. So the government covered up for Encanta and said, uh, the only problem we have in Alberta is that landowners cannot keep their wells clean, uh, free of bacteria, and all the methane in their well water is coming from that bacteria. So Albertans were blamed for gas migration from industry sources. All right, so let me sum up then why, why this story is so important and why each and every Albertan needs to pay attention to it. We had a company fracking into a local aquifer. We had Alberta Environment then conduct a bogus information. And then we had the Alberta Research Council do a cover-up, which forced a citizen of this province to spend $350,000 and eight years in counting to get the responsible authorities to account for what they allowed to happen in Rosebud, Alberta. Thank you.